You are now listening to the September 1st broadcast of Unity in Christ. Today's topics are the history of the Biblio, the sex spiral, and grace upon grace. We will begin with the history of the Biblio. This program will examine how the Bible was recorded, inspect the archaeological evidence, as well as the different languages it has been translated into. Hey listeners, this is Jisoo, your host for The History of the Biblio, where we learn about the preservation and translation of the Bible. Last time, we talked about how the Bible was preserved and translated during the period when Christians were persecuted up to the point Christianity became the state religion. Though there were many attempts to burn and get rid of the Christian Bible, the Bible remained intact and was later translated into many different languages. However, persecution against Christians and the Bible that lasted continuously for almost 250 years ended only when Constantine became emperor of Rome. Afterwards, one would think that the Bible spread without trouble, right? But that wasn't the case either. Just because Christianity became the state religion didn't mean that the Bible's reach or translation suddenly expanded. There were other obstacles. For example, during the Middle Ages, the common people couldn't freely learn from, distribute, or translate the Bible. Why was this the case? Today, we will look at the Bible of the Middle Ages and the reasons why distributing this was difficult during this time period. By the end of the 4th century, the Roman Empire was divided into West and East. Accordingly, these regions were called the Western Roman Empire and the Eastern Roman Empire. As time passed, differences in culture, language, and politics made these regions oppose each other. The Church, too, experienced a split, with a Catholic Church centered around Rome in the West, and an Orthodox church centered around Constantinople in the east. Looking at the Bibles each of these churches used, one could see that Latin and the Vulgata Bible became standard in the Western church, while the Septuagint and the Greek Bible became standard in the east. By the end of the 5th century, with the fall of the Western Roman Empire, the central government that governed both east and west also collapsed. In its place arose the position of Pope, who was to be the leader of the church. But through this change, the Pope became more than a religious leader. As also a political figure with a great deal of power, the Church soon began its reign over Europe. The Church and the Bible influenced all aspects of life. All the art, architecture, and poetry of the Middle Ages depicted Bible stories. If we look at medieval art in museums today, we can see many Bible stories told through sculptures and paintings. Many illustrated Bibles were made during the Middle Ages as well. There are thousands of medieval Bibles that exist to this day that were hand-copied on fine kid, illuminated with gold and silver filigree, and embellished with precious gems. Some Bibles were so heavily decorated that it's hard to read the script itself. These expensive and fancy Bibles, while containing the Word of God, became instead symbols of wealth and status. Additionally, while the Bible was central to medieval culture and ideology, most people of the Middle Ages were not able to read a Bible in their own language. 
This was because the Catholic Church forbid the translating of the Bible into different languages. The people who knew Latin then were limited to scholars or members of the clergy. Most commoners, who were illiterate and too poor to purchase a Bible, had no way of accessing the Bible, except when clerics would read from them in church. The Catholic Church not only forbid translating the Bible, but they also forbid commoners from familiarizing themselves with the Bible. They argued that the wonders of the Bible weren't something to be made public or explained to everyone. The Pope was believed to have the greatest authority in the Church, even greater than the Bible. Additionally, the Pope was to have the final say in the Bible's analysis and translation. Also, during the Middle Ages, many Bibles were transcribed by religious figures in monasteries and cloisters. However, these Bibles were most often locked up in monasteries and cathedral libraries. This means that while many Bibles were made, common people still did not have access to them. As the Pope's political power grew to be of greater influence than even the Bible, the Church became corrupt. People who opposed this were treated as heretics and either excommunicated or executed. While the churches grew ever more corrupt, John Wycliffe in 14th century England began to criticize the Church and the Pope's rule. The support for Wycliffe's criticism was the Bible. Wycliffe stated that only the Bible had authority and that the Pope or Church tradition could not stand above the Bible. His viewpoint became central to the religious reformation that came after. Wycliffe, who translated the importance of the Bible, translated the Latin New Testament into English. His friend joined in the task by translating the Old Testament into English as well. The Archbishop of Canterbury responded to this by creating an edict, outlawing Wycliffe's version of the Bible and banning the translation of the Bible into English. Despite such laws, the Bible spread far and wide, and Wycliffe's many followers studied the Bible and spread the gospel. Finally, English speakers could read the Bible in their own language. The Concilium Ecumenicum, however, determined Wycliffe to be a heretic and despite it being 40 years after his death, dug up his body to be burned. As we learned last time, oppressors of the Bible were always set on burning the Bible and burning the people who translated or distributed the Bible. They probably thought this would stop the Bible from being translated and distributed. But no matter how many books and people were burned, these fires could not stop the spread of truth. Such was the case during the Middle Ages as well. Because the one who gave us the Bible is God, nothing can stand in its way. Next time, we'll look at the Bible during the Reformation era. I end today's chapter of the history of the Biblia hoping that we all can live in the Word and be a witness to its truth. Goodbye. Runs deep.
Coming up next is a podcast series, The Sex Spiral, led by Pastor Dustin Daniels of Purity Ministry from Phoenix, Arizona. The program addresses sex with biblical grace and truth, without the shock value, and is a resource for anyone looking for biblical answers to pornography, singleness, marriage, family, and children. This program may contain mature language and subject matter. Welcome to God, Sex, and You, a daily discipleship podcast on healthy sexuality. Here's your host, Purity Pastor, Dustin Daniels. Over the past seven weeks, we have listened to a 13-week teaching series that I've taught to a class here in Phoenix last fall. It's called The Sex Spiral, Forgiven and Free from Pornography. The Sex Spiral is a set of awareness triggers. These are not steps, but triggers. You know, the steps in a 12-step program, they're used as a guiding principle. They basically outline a course of action for us. Triggers, on the other hand, these explain the location as to where you are right now inside this habit, this bondage, or this addiction to pornography. Triggers are immediate feedback. Steps, on the other hand, are long-range goals that you wish to accomplish. Steps are similar to looking at the face on your watch so that you can tell the time. While triggers are all the little gears and the motors that you can't see yet, triggers allow us to take that watch apart to see how it operates. It basically answers the question, why? Well, pornography is a series of predictable habits that we've created for ourselves. The bad news is that we don't realize that. The good news is that as you listen, as you review, and as you start applying this material to your own life, you, by the grace of Almighty God, you will break free from the bondage of porn. Jesus Christ did not die for your sin and rise from the dead for you to remain an addicted Christian. And here's the deal. When we know where we are inside this spiral, we then can become less emotional about things and we can start making better decisions that are based in reality and not in fantasy. And when we realize where we are, then it's then we can make decisions to exit this road to nowhere and make a turn that leads to hope. Today, we're going to hear some feedback from the men who took this class. And we've got a lot to learn from these guys, men who are in the, the very trenches of their own sex spiral themselves, men from all ages, all backgrounds, men who are single and, and married. Uh, divorced, remarried, and, and basically on the verge of divorce. Men who have been in bondage to pornography for decades and men who have had uh, affairs along with every other sexual sin that you can think of. And these are men who own local businesses, who deliver your mail, who do your taxes. These men protect your community and also preach at your churches. That's right. These Christian men who love the Lord and they struggle with the sin of lust. So let's get started and learn from them today. Today's lesson is titled Encouragement from Guys in the Trenches. 
Yeah, the being intentional is big. As we, as you guys take the break and wherever God leads you with this, um, you know, it's intentionality is key, and it's almost to the point to where, you know, you could set up your purity plan as as being religious. Almost, you know, I would like to err on the side of of being too legalistic with it, right? To to have a regimented schedule. But once again, that's the part of renewing your mind with all of this. I mean, I don't have a purity plan for you guys this week, but, you know, and it only takes 30 or 40 days to create a new habit. And we were 50 or 60 days in, into, that, into that plan. And so learning to pray, learning to listen, learning to journal, learning to obey on what we've heard. You know, I'm a firm believer in realizing that the Holy Spirit is the only counselor that we need. But we just are real hesitant to spend an hour with him in the morning and shut up and listen, right? I've experienced that when I listen to God and I try to do that as part of my prayer time for 15, 20, 30 minutes at a time to just sit there or kneel is what I do and just listen, usually I don't hear God speak during that time. Where I hear Him speak is when I'm not expecting Him to speak. So I'll get up and pray and, and do that, and then when I'm done praying, I'll walk my dogs and, and usually listen to worship music, and, and um, it's usually when I'm not expecting, oh. But it's that silence is what prepares us to hear His voice. Because like you said, most people don't spend even 10 or 12 minutes in silence like we do on a weekly basis. It's just weird, right? It's like, whoa, shouldn't someone be saying something? No, we need to shut up and listen. So maybe it's if you guys want to swap things around that you actually spend 15, 20, 30 minutes just listening and then read your devotional and then read the word. You could try that, too. You do it both ways. Any other thoughts tonight? I don't have any for the past uh, the 13 weeks. Of, I mean, it's the second time through it that I've, I've been. Obviously, you kind of learn more each time. Mm-hmm. Um, I just, I, can, I was just talking to my wife the other day about it again. I mentioned it multiple times to her. How I'm learning how to kind of that gauge you talked about, that scale from 1 to 10. And just like some of the guys in here say, when I look back at where I was 11 months ago, you know, like I told you, January 1st was when I was delivered from bondage. Mm-hmm. I mean, how awesome is that? You know what I mean? A complete start to a new year. And when I look back now, even though the ebbs and flows, the ups and downs, the, you know, the times where 30 minutes in prayer seem to be nothing. Other days, I don't want to get up. I still got to go to work. I don't want to get up. I'd rather stay there for hours, but I can't. I got to leave. Um, through all those ebbs and flows... You know, sometimes you, you start to beat yourself up, and obviously I haven't been a Christian for so many years, I've learned finally to just, no, it's okay, it's just, this is a dry time. It's, you know, it doesn't mean I'm doing horrible, it's just it's the way things tend to go. But then when I, every time I look back at that scale and look at where I came from, I, I look at the issues I have now, and I'm still not satisfied. If the only issue I have is masturbation, then I can't be satisfied. Okay, I'm good, I've, I've reached my goal, because... You see, it started 30 years ago with masturbation. Right. And if I leave it there, then it's going to eventually go right back into prostitutes, 
strip clubs, you name it, everything you can think of, mm-hmm. it goes back into that. So when I look at a year ago where I was and where I am, and then you talking about that scale, and now seeing the change in the last year spiritually. I mean, I, my wife can see it, but not like, I mean, all of us can. We look back and we see, I see how much the Word of God has never popped out in my life in the past, since I was five years old, has never popped out like it does now. Not even close. Um, and each time I learn more, and it's, I'm learning this, and I switch this, and I'm back to this, and it's like I can't, my brain is just bouncing all over the place, you know, and I see that scale, I want that 10. Because I want to be at a point in my life, someday, where I'm like David, I'm like Paul, you don't care. That's how they were martyrs. Mm-hmm. They didn't care at that point. It didn't matter. That's where I want to be someday. Granted, I'm not there yet. That's the hope. You know what I mean? But mm-hmm. I, I think the last, you know, like I said, going through the sin cycle twice and seeing it, and, and it's so cool to talk about the awareness. For me, that was really the beginning after being here for a couple, two or three months, and finally seeing, oh, this is where it started. And then you could see that cycle slow way down. I could see stuff happen. I would tell him, I'd call him up, and, and I, would, I would see what was happening, and I'd fall three days later. And I found my trigger, found certain triggers that I have to talk to my wife, or I will fall. I, it now is, it, I have to deal with her. I have to let her know where my heart's at. Mm-hmm. It's not her fault, but this is what I'm going through. And when I found that I did that, it's gone. It's, mm-hmm. It releases me from, mm-hmm. you know. So that's another thing, too, is learning that some of my triggers I have to address the triggery. He wasn't even doing anything wrong. Mm-hmm. It's my own thoughts right. of myself. Yeah. Yeah. But it's been a great year. And I'm guessing that your wife is, is, uh, has seen you change more than probably she yeah. lends on to, right? Right. Because they... Our spouses, we've we've hurt them deeply, and they don't want to get too excited about anything. So, any other thoughts for tonight? I catch stuff much sooner. Kind of recognize it almost before it can even happen. Kind of almost can foresee it a little bit. So that's been great. And if you can do it like with your wife, if she's near you, I mean, like she'll notice. Like I'll change like commercials if I see something that's provocative. You know. Like that's a big deal to her. Mm-hmm. Probably just for every wife. Just I know it is for mine. Mm-hmm. So weird to get into that habit, but the more you do it, it's like it becomes almost automatic. It's kind of like learning that habit. I try to make it a habit of watching PG or PG thirteen stuff, but the stuff lately. Good night. You know. I'm talking network commercials. I'm not talking. Oh <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, that's true. Carl's Jr. Carl's Jr. Yeah. 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 That's funny you said I was watching a movie with my wife last night that had, it was probably like a five second sex scene in it. And I was looking at my phone and I did not look up and I felt like it was like five minutes long. I'm just like, I don't know, she probably didn't even think twice about it, but it was awkward. Definitely awkward. Yeah. But I would say that tension, right, is good. I think that tension is good because. Because when you're thrown into walking into somewhere, whether it's a restaurant and your buddy's sending you to the wrong place or <laughs> you walk into a store, you just get blindsided, right? It's, uh, you know, I was talking to a, a guy that, that worked on the ASU campus. He's like, ah, I can't do that. You know, the problem is, no, the problem's you. 
If you're a man of God, walk on ASU campus and start looking at the women in their eyes. What are you talking about? You know what I'm talking about. You know what I'm talking about. You know, don't play games. But that's the whole point of this, right? Is that once you get a handle on self-control, all of a sudden God's going to be able to use you guys for the kingdom like big stuff. Anything else tonight, guys? All right. Well, it's been good to have the partners. I think that's been a big deal. I don't know how many guys in this room are willing to talk to that. but Yeah, that, that tends to fluctuate, doesn't it? Your partner thing and staying connected. At the, we all have to make a real effort to keep that going. And I know, I believe me, guys, I know it's hit and miss. I know it is. And I know that some of you have really gotten bad partners for a long time over the, over the year. And... Um, it just my take on that is just that's a heart issue everyone is certainly at different stages on this journey towards recovery and purity and there is a delicate dance between truth and grace when it comes to dealing with people in your your own recovery groups and that's why this sex spiral material is so critical to understand My suggestion to you is to use this worksheet as a timeline for the last time that you sinned. So as you think, as you review about what happened and how you gave into your lust, you're going to see the different triggers on the worksheet. And all you have to do is literally start writing down one or two keywords at each trigger and then take that worksheet and then go over exactly what happened with a trusted friend or a group partner. And when we continue to do this, we're going to start seeing patterns. And when you start seeing patterns in your life, you're able then to consciously and willfully make changes when temptation arises. Because when there is change, we've got hope. And when we have hope, there's going to be more change. So have you made any changes yet by simply listening to these podcasts? Has your prayer time, has that changed at all? How about your devotional time in the morning? I've been preaching and and almost begging you to uh, protect your phone and your tablet and your computers with some type of of internet filter and porn blocker. Once again, when there's change, we have hope. And when we have hope, there's going to be more change. And this road to recovery, this narrow path to purity is one of cooperation with the Lord. So the big question is, are you cooperating with him? Well, if you don't have a current filtering software system on your digital devices, let me recommend to you Covenant Eyes filtering software. Well, thank you so much for listening to God, Sex, and You. I'm Dustin Daniels. If you're in Phoenix, you're invited to my weekly community group. It's a group that focuses on healthy sexuality. It's for men and women, single, divorced, husbands, wives, everyone is welcome. You're invited to listen to God with us every Tuesday at 7 p.m. at Northern Hills Community Church. We are in building A, room 301. You can follow me on Twitter at Purity Pastor. And if you've got a question for me, Uh, visit DustinDanielsRadio.com and uh, send that question in. The Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 4.20, the kingdom of God isn't just a lot of talk. It's living in God's power. And that power, my friend, 
is in the very name. It's in the shed blood of Jesus Christ.
are listening to Unity in Christ, the English hour in our broadcast program. Here at Heart and Soul Gospel Ministries, we strive to connect our listeners to engage with a community of believers as one body under Christ. Since 2000, we have dedicated our lives to make disciples of all nations through radio broadcasting. We are always encouraged to hear from you, so if you have any comments or testimonies that you would like to share, please feel free to email us at askhsgm at gmail.com. Also, don't forget to subscribe to Heart and Soul Podcasts on iTunes for weekly sermons. To learn more, visit heartandsoul.org. Coming up next is a sermon by Pastor David Platt of Radical. Today's topic is Leadership, Part 1 and Part 2, based on 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 16. I hope you have a blessed time with Pastor David. Biblical Leadership So let's dive into 1 Timothy chapter 3, where we see God define two primary groups of leaders in the church. So start in verse 1. Paul is writing this letter to Timothy, who is pastoring the church at Ephesus. And he says, this saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Deacons likewise must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience and let them also be tested first. Then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives likewise must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Okay, the church of the living God, verse 15, is led by two specific groups in the church that are outlined in verses 1 through 13. The first group, if you're taking notes, is elders, who for the time being will call servant leaders in the church. And then the second group is deacons. 
who for the time being we'll call leading servants in the church. And I'll explain why I'm using those descriptions as we go. So elders who are servant leaders and deacons who are leading servants. So let's think about both of these groups. We'll start with elders. So the word elder is translated overseer here in verses one and two is a pretty common term in the Bible. In the Old Testament, it's used to describe the leaders who assisted Moses. In the New Testament, sometimes it's used to refer to people who are of more mature age. Other times it's used to refer to spiritual leaders in Israel in the past. But about 20 times, this word refers to a unique group of leaders in the church. Nearly every church we know of in the New Testament is specifically said to have had elders or pastors or overseers. Now, those three terms are interchangeable in the New Testament. And we know they're interchangeable because in this parallel passage in Titus chapter one, as well as 1 Peter chapter five, and in another passage I want you to turn with me to, Acts chapter 20, we see these three terms used interchangeably. So hold your place. We're actually gonna go back and forth a couple times between 1 Timothy and the book of Acts. So if you take a left, you go back to the book of Acts, Acts chapter 20. I wanna show you a picture of elder, overseer, pastor there. So same biblical term, whenever you see any one of those terms, basically referring to the same group of people. And while you're turning to Acts chapter 20, just mention as a side note that every time elders is used in the Bible to refer to leaders in the church, it's almost always mentioned in the plural. So at various points in scripture, we obviously see certain individual leaders highlighted among God's people. But most every time we see this term, we see more than one elder, pastor, overseer in a church. We'll see that in Acts 20. And then based on this passage in 1 Timothy 3, I want to show you four responsibilities of elders or pastors in the church. Like some people say, okay, a pastor, like you preach on Sunday, what else in the world do you do? Which is a valid question that I think deserves an answer. So we're going to think about what do elders or pastors, it's not just me, it's all kinds of folks across church. What do, what do they do? So Acts chapter 20, Paul here is speaking to the elders or pastors of the church at Ephesus. So that has a direct tie with what we're reading in 1 Timothy. And he gives them these instructions. Pick up in verse 28. Verse 28, Paul says to these pastors or elders in the church at Ephesus, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. We can keep going on, but let's stop here. I want to show you, so four responsibilities of elders or pastors or overseers in the church. So first, elders lead church under the authority of Christ. They lead. So when you see this term overseer, you think of a leader. But we've got to be careful because oftentimes when you think of somebody who's overseeing something, you kind of think of someone who's the ultimate leader of something. But that is not the case with elders or pastors. So that's why I am calling here elders or pastors, servant leaders of the church, because elders or pastors, they're definitely leaders, 
but they're subservient leaders. Follow this. This is key. Elders belong to the church. So we've already seen in this whole series in Matthew chapter 18, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, 2 Corinthians chapter 2, Galatians chapter 1, that Jesus holds the whole church accountable for making sure the gospel is being preached in the church and making sure unrepentant sin is addressed in the church. In 1 Timothy 3, what we read at first is teaching that the church appoints elders. So the church looks for particular qualities in an elder and then affirms them as an elder or a pastor, which is why we have in place processes as a church to make sure that the church is accountable for any leader who's put into a position like that. Like I am a teaching pastor here at McLean Bible Church because of a process the church walked through last September to affirm me in this role. And if you hadn't affirmed me, I would not be in this role. So similarly this week on Wednesday night at our congregational meeting, members of this church will have the opportunity to affirm a couple of elders whose term is up for renewal. Then there's processes that we have in place as a church to examine a leader before we call him a pastor among us. Because elders ultimately belong to the church and the church ultimately belongs to Christ. Did you hear in Acts chapter 20, verse 28? Overseers care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. Oh, it's not possible to approach church leadership lightly when you realize the gravity of Acts 20, 28, follow this. Church leadership is so different from so much of worldly leadership. Church leadership is not and must never be characterized as a power struggle marked by politics and power plays. And the reason is because Jesus Christ has absolute power in the church. And every leader in the church is a servant of the church ultimately accountable to the one who paid his life for the church. That brings a sober humility, even fear to church leadership. There is no place for pride in church leadership. Elders lead under the authority of Christ. And second, elders care for the body of Christ. So this is the picture of a shepherd here in Acts chapter 20, verse 28. First Peter 5 says the same thing to elders, shepherd the flock of God that is entrusted to your care. What does this picture of shepherding the flock look like? Well, to summarize the role of a shepherd, this means that elders protect the flock like a shepherd protecting sheep from wolves. Let's listen to Paul here in Acts 20. He said, be on your guard. Watch out for false teachers. Watch out for false doctrine. Savage wolves that will come in among you. There is an adversary who is always trying to attack the church and members of the church spiritually from the outside, from the inside. And elders and pastors have a God-given responsibility to guard not only their lives, but the spiritual lives of the members of a church. So you look in verse 32, Paul commits these elders or pastors to the word. The elder pastor's responsibility as a shepherd, follow this, it's not just to pet the sheep. Elder pastor's responsibility is to feed the sheep to nourish the sheep, which leads right in the next responsibility of an elder or pastor, something this leader must be able to do. Elders teach the word of Christ. So this is the primary way that elders or pastors lead the church and care for the church by teaching the word of Christ. It's interesting, 
We'll go back to 1 Timothy 3 in just a minute. But you look in those qualifications for an elder, most all of them are character qualifications that are really expected of all Christians. But there is one competency qualification that's listed in 1 Timothy chapter 3. Competency that an elder must have. 1 Timothy chapter 3 verse 2 says an elder must be able to teach. An elder must have a gift of teaching. And the reason for that is because an elder or pastor's leadership is totally tied to teaching God's word. Think about it. Who's the ultimate leader of the church? Jesus, right? But we don't see Jesus physically in front of us. So how does Jesus lead his church? Through his word that we do have physically in front of us. Which means that the elder must, follow this, elders must know God's word extensively, must study this word, memorize this word, meditate on this word, because elders, pastors can't lead the church without this word. Elders do not lead the church according to their own thoughts, their own opinions, their own ideas. They can do that with some other company or organization in the world, but elders cannot do that with the church. Paul says here in Acts 20 that the church... He led the church in Ephesus for three years with God's word, teaching them the whole counsel of God. So elders must know God's word extensively and they must communicate God's word effectively. And this is huge. Because if, if an elder or pastor is not teaching God's word, then he is not fit to lead God's church. We do not follow elders or pastors just because they have a position we only follow elders or pastors if they know the word, they're following the word, and are teaching others to follow it. The minute I am not teaching this word accurately and faithfully, that is the minute I lose the right to lead in this church. And that goes for any elder pastor. I remember the first week I ever became a pastor. I was 26. This church calls me to be their pastor. I go into the office on Monday morning. I sit down at the desk and I thought, what do I do? I didn't have a clue what to do. And I started thinking, well, I know I need to preach on Sunday. So I open up the Bible, just start there. And the days, months, years to come, teaching and leading according to the word, I saw this word do the work. Now, fast forward almost 14 years. I'm down with our students at the beach this week, and a guy recognizes me at the hotel we're staying at. He says, are you David Platt? I said, yeah. He starts telling me about he, how he just started pastoring a church for the first time less than a year ago. He asked me, what counsel would you give me? And I thought about it. I looked back at him. And I said, bro, I still really don't know what I'm doing. Keep that a secret between me and the church that I'm pastoring. It's kind of out of the bag now. But I said, just let the word do the work. Know the word, teach the word, live, lead, do everything you do according to the word, and Jesus will lead his church. Elders, pastors, lead under the authority of Christ. They care for the body of Christ. They teach the word of Christ. And fourth, elders model character of Christ. So this is where I want you to turn back with me now to 1 Timothy chapter 3. We're going to come back to Acts in a different place in a minute. Back to 1 Timothy 3 and the list of qualifications that are there. And just so you know, there are similar lists in Titus chapter 1, verse 5 through 9, as well as 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 1 through 3. When you put all those passages together, you see an entire list of character qualifications for elders or pastors. Now, before we think about what's on the list, I want you to notice what's not on these lists. 
So first, age is not on these lists. So just because a man is older does not mean he should be an elder in the church. And just because a man is younger does not mean he shouldn't be an elder in the church. Timothy, who Paul is actually writing this letter to, was extremely young. Considered very young, as we find out in the very next chapter. So age, second, success in business is not on this list. So just because someone is successful in the world does not make him able to lead the church with the word. Many times we think, oh yeah, that person's successful. They would make a good elder. We've got to make sure we're not looking at the world's definition of success for leadership in the church. And this is not just a list of good old boys either. So the qualifications don't include men in the church that everybody just loves to like. And speaking of men, so this passage and others like it are why, according to the Bible, we only have male elders and pastors at McLean Bible Church. I fully realize, trust we realize, that goes totally against the grain of our culture, much like the Bible's teaching on marriage. Just as God and his word is called husbands to be the leaders in their families, is a picture of Christ's love for the church. It's a whole other sermon for another day. But in the same way, God has called men to be elders, pastors, overseers in the church. First Timothy 3, Titus 1, both clearly state that God has designated men to be pastors and elders in the church, such that to do otherwise would be to go against God's word. But I want to be crystal clear, one, that this does not in any form or fashion means that the Bible views or that we should ever view men as superior in any way to women. That is absolutely not God's design for the husband in the home, and it's absolutely not God's design for the pastor in the church. And as we'll see in a minute, God has called women to all sorts of significant leadership roles in the church, and it is sinful and to our shame if we as a church ever fail to help women flourish across the church in all kinds of capacities, including leadership capacities. There is no such thing as a biblical church in which the men flourish and the women do not. Which is why the character qualifications of elders and pastors here are so critical. Now, as I mentioned earlier, there's nothing really on this list that God doesn't desire for every one of us as Christians, which is kind of the point. God intends for elders or pastors to be models of the character of Christ for the members of the church. Later on, Hebrews chapter 13, verse 7, says to watch your leaders, their way of life, and imitate their faith. When you think about all the biblical characteristics of an elder or pastor, that's the overriding question. When you look at this passage here in 1 Timothy, then parallel passages in Titus and 1 Peter, you see different categories of a man's character that you need to think about, that we as a church need to think about. We need to ask, what will happen if the church imitates this leader in his personal life? The Bible beckons us to ask questions like, is he self-controlled, not addicted to anything, not addicted to alcohol, to pornography, to food, to anything? Self-controlled, is he wise, is he peaceable, is he gentle? These are the words that the Bible uses. Is he a sacrificial giver? He must not be a lover of money, must not be greedy. Is he humble? This is a picture of a shepherd. This is not a glamorous job. Is he patient? Is he honest? Is he disciplined? So we look for those characteristics in elders or pastor's personal life and then in his family life, we ask the question, is he a servant leader in his home? An elder or pastor can't lead the church under the authority of Christ if he doesn't lead his home under the authority of Christ. We need to look at a man's leadership and his family and ask, 
Is he leading them under Christ? Is he caring for them? Is he teaching them the word? If he's single, is he self-controlled in a way that reflects 1 Corinthians chapter 7? If he's married, is he completely committed to his wife? Evident in how he serves and sacrifices for her? Is this a husband that we want people to imitate? If he has children, do they honor him? These are all questions we ask when we consider elders and pastors in the church and look in their home and then beyond their home. The church is intended to look in business and social life and ask, is he kind? Is he hospitable? Is he a friend of strangers? Does he show favoritism? Does he have a blameless reputation among outsiders? Obviously, it doesn't mean that he's perfect, but is he above reproach in the community? If somebody doesn't have a reputation for integrity and kindness in social and business settings, then that person should not be a pastor or elder in the church. And finally, we think, what will happen if the church imitates this leader in his spiritual life? We need to ask, is he making disciples of all nations? An elder or pastor can't lead the church on mission if he's not living that out in his own life. Any elder or pastor should be able, by God's grace, to point to others who are following Christ and making disciples as a result of his life. Is he a disciple maker? Does he love the word? Is he a man of prayer? Is he holy? Oh, do you realize how hard it is to preach this sermon? I'm preparing this week and just praying, God, make me more and more this kind of leader for this church. No, knowing there's no way I can be this kind of leader and no other pastor or elder in this church can be this kind of leader apart from the grace of Christ. Needless to say, Jesus sets a high bar for pastors and elders in the church and he gives them serious responsibility to lead under his authority, to care for his body that he bought with his own blood teach his word faithfully and to model his character. Well, for every member of this church, we talked about this in biblical membership, to be a member of a church means to be cared for by leaders in that church. And we want 1 Timothy 3, Titus 1 type men doing that kind of work all across this church. We want to continually improve how we do this as a church. Different elders and pastors have different responsibilities, like the board of elders carries out some responsibilities, campus and staff Pastors carry out other responsibilities. Other pastors who aren't on staff carry out other responsibilities. This is the picture we see in Scripture, a plurality of elders, pastors, working together to lead, care, teach, model Christ in the church. So just let's be clear. The pastor is not somebody who puts on a show every week. Elders, pastors are leaders whose responsibility is to make sure that every member of the church is cared for well in Christ. And our goal before God is to make sure that every single member of this church is shepherded well. Alongside this second group of leaders in the church, so deacons who are mentioned in the last part of 1 Timothy chapter 3. Now, the challenging thing about deacons is that while we see these qualifications for deacons here, we don't really see a clear picture in the Bible of what deacons do, at least not as clear as we see about what elders or pastors do. In fact, we rarely see, outside of this passage, deacons mentioned specifically as leaders in the church, but we do see a powerful picture in the very word deacon. So, but go to Acts, this time Acts chapter six, that illustrates this word of serving or ministering. And Acts 6 uses this word to describe people who are leading out 
and serving in the church. That's why I use the term leading servants. So look at Acts chapter 6, verse 1 with me. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists, that's the Greeks, arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution of food. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit, Philip and Prochorus and Nicanor and Timon, Parmenas and Nicolaus, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase. The number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And a great number of the priests became obedient to the faith. Now you see that end of verse 2 where it says serving tables. That word for serving there is the word from which we get deacon. Now the picture here that we have in Acts chapter 6 is basically two groups of leaders in the church. On one hand you have a group of leaders here the apostles who are responsible primarily for prayer, ministry of the word which we've already seen is primarily what elders and pastors do. And you have another group that rises here to lead out in a specific area of service, which is how we biblically understand deacons. So the question then, what do deacons do, leads to three primary responsibilities of deacons. So first, deacons meet needs according to the word. According to God's word, they meet needs. So again, that's the primary meaning of the word diakonos. So spiritual service aimed at meeting a specific ministry need and the needs here in Acts chapter 6 arise from specific circumstances. Picture it here in the early church in Jerusalem. Church was growing, was sharing resources with each other. They needed somebody to help lead out in the distribution of food. There was a specific need that necessitated these leaders. That's part of the reason I think we don't see clear deacon responsibility spelled out in the New Testament because the needs in the church necessitate different types of leaders at different times in the church. So that was the need at this point. There was another need, another need at another point, just like there are various needs we face as a church and how to best care for each other. So deacons meet needs that arise from specific circumstances and they assume accountability for specific commands. Think about it. Scripture, God and his word necessitated that the church look after widows. So in order to carry out God's commands, God's heart, these deacons were assuming accountability for carrying out those commands from God. How this applies today in a minute, but keep going here. Deacons meet needs according to the word, God's word. Then second, deacons support the ministry of the word. So not only are they meeting a need here in Acts 6, but because these widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food, the apostles were being taken away from their overall leadership responsibilities. And as a result of that, the mission of the church was starting to suffer. So here we see the balance God intends for the church. He wants the church to be fully devoted to his word and fully devoted to meeting needs in the church and in the world and these leaders who are devoted to both. So this is a critical role that deacons play in the church. Deacons serve elders so they can lead. These deacons here, Stephen and others, freed the apostles, devoted themselves to prayer and the word, which was huge. This, this is not a second power block in the church. This is not a body of leaders competing with the elders to provide overall leadership in the church. This is not a second house in the legislature. Deacons here in Acts 6 are helping to make sure that elders and pastors are leading 
with the word as God has designed them to. And in the process, deacons are leading others so they can serve. So notice this. Only seven leading servants are selected here. That's certainly not a large enough group to handle the entire problem for a church that contained thousands of people at this time. So these deacons were organizing others to make sure the work was done. Follow this. Everybody in the church is intended to serve. These people were helping lead all these servants. So deacons meet needs according to the word. They support the ministry of the word. And finally, deacons unify the body around the word. You think about what's happening here in Acts 6. The unity of the church was at stake here. And this physical neglect was causing spiritual disunity. Christians beginning to complain against each other. There was tension. The deacons were appointed to squelch this rising disunity in the church. So how did they do that? And this is where we square this picture in Acts 6 with what we've already read in 1 Timothy chapter 3. Deacons demonstrate, follow this, a Christ-like character with a mission mindset. Two things there. The church in Acts 6 was just growing at breathtaking speeds. And the church needed leaders who said, we have a mission to accomplish. We need to unite together around that mission. So deacons are not small-minded, engrossed in turf wars, caring about their area or their rights in the church, advocating for their cause, lobbying for their corner in the church. They see the overall mission of the church. They work to help the church stay focused on that mission, realizing their ministry is a part of that mission. You think about it. We exist as a church to glorify God by making disciples and multiplying churches among all nations, beginning right here in D.C. And deacons exist to make sure that mission stays front and center with Christ-like character. And again, much like elders or pastors, deacons are intended to model the character of Christ. Should be honorable, genuine, self-controlled, also a sacrificial giver, devoted to God's word. Though a deacon doesn't have to have the gift of teaching that an elder or pastor must have. A deacon must be faithful, blameless, personally and family, much like an elder or pastor. Now what's interesting here in verse 11 is that you see mention of their wives likewise. But then you probably see a note in your Bible that says this could be translated women likewise, which has led some to debate about whether or not this is a reference to women deacons or deaconesses, as some call them. And in that debate, so basically, can deacons be men and women? There's basically two schools of thought. Some say yes, and others say no. And that pretty much sums up the debate. Glad I was able to help you with that. And here's the deal. I know Bible-believing scholars and pastors that I respect greatly who fall down on both sides of this discussion. But here's why I and other pastors and elders here at McLean, far before I got here, like all the way back to the founding of this church, believe this refers to women serving as deacons, or you call them deaconesses. And it's not because of certain pressure from the culture one way or the other. The culture does not drive the church, must never drive the church. The wisdom of God in his word drives the church. And when you look at the language here, in the original language, the pronoun there is actually not there, which is why some translators think it's implied, others don't. Imagine there's different translations all around this room. It's also odd that 1 Timothy 3 would mention deacons' wives, but not elders' wives. And the transition that starts verse 11 with that word likewise in the original language of the New Testament is the same transition that was used back in verse 8 when Paul began talking about a different group of people there. You then look at other passages. If we had time, we go to Romans chapter 16, verse 1, where Phoebe is called a servant of the church. And the word for servant there 
that's used to describe Phoebe is diakonos, which many believe points to a diaconal role that she played. Then you combine that with the fact that all over the Bible, women had integral roles in leadership among God's people, both Old Testament Israel and the New Testament church. So I, we, as humbly as I, we can in submission to God's word, would affirm women in all kinds of leadership capacities in the church, apart from pastor or elder. Again, it's God's word that drives us. Like one of the main things I hope that's clear in this whole series and even today is that God defines and designs the church and we live and operate according to what he defines and what he designs. Our goal is to align as much as possible with what he has said. So our current elders and pastors and I are in the midst of diving into, okay then, who are the deacons across this church? Who are the men and women who are leading servants across this church? The people in various positions of leadership who are already carrying out these responsibilities biblically. And how can we best affirm and honor them and make sure that they're meeting the biblical expectations that we see here in a way that honors and glorifies God? Again, we want to see Acts 6, 1 Timothy 3, 8 through 13, people type, type people all across McLean Bible Church, which is the whole point. So just imagine with me for a second a church filled with servant leaders like pastors and elders who are humbly leading under Christ's authority, who are making sure that every single member of this church is cared for, who are teaching God's word, showing what it looks like in their lives and families on mission in the world. And then imagine leading servants, deacons, both men and women, who are leading out in all kinds of ways across the church. I, I think of all the student leaders I spent time with this week, many who took a week of go vacation to go cram in a whole room, in a hotel room with a group of teenagers? Does that sound like an ideal vacation to the world? Or to be honest, to many of you? But they did that because they wanted to shepherd these students' hearts to this pivotal time in their lives. And not just once a year, I think about men and women and students who are doing that every week here in Kids Quest and student ministry and access ministry and hospitalities and ministries and scores of ways all across this church and different campuses. Oh, see this. The bottom line is church leaders exalt Christ as they display his love for the church. This is how Jesus loves and leads his church through elders, pastors, and deacons, Deaconesses who serve the church with selfless care, just like him. In this way, church leaders are intended to help all of us love Jesus more. That's why this church leadership is really important. And in the process, don't miss this. Church leaders equip and enable us to accomplish our purpose, our mission in the world. This is a whole nother sermon. But the whole point of church leadership, according to Ephesians chapter 4, is to equip the church for the work of ministry. Like the last thing I want you to take away from the word today is, okay, pastors, elders, deacons, deaconesses, they're the leaders of the church, and the rest of us won't really do much. I would miss the whole point. We talk all the time, every follower of Christ in this church, 
is called and created to make disciples of Jesus. I'm going to put a verse back up on the screen that we read a minute ago. Acts chapter 6, verses 7. Remember what we saw? We read that passage. First six verses show these different groups of leaders working together in the church. And then do you remember what verse 7 said? So as a result of biblical leadership working across biblical membership in the church, the Bible says, and the word of God continued to increase. And the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem for the glory of our King. Will you pray with me? God, we pray for this. Acts 6, Acts 20, 1 Timothy 3, Titus chapter 1, 1 Peter chapter 5, type for your glory and for our good. In Jesus' name, amen. This concludes today's series of Unity in Christ. Thank you for listening, and I look forward to being with you again next week.